0: So there's the price you'd pay normally, and then there's like the vacation price. So if you want a pretzel, like the kind you can get a QT for like two bucks, um, on the vacation price is like seven dollars. And then you, <clears throat> if you want a burger, you know, like a burger you get at Freddy's or something is four dollars or whatever it is, it's like ten dollars. And we went out for ice cream one night, and I like saved up some room because I was like starving. I wanted. I wanted a lot of ice cream, and we go to this place, and I got the biggest size possible for $7, and it was like, just like this tiny little bowl. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to go home and have a snack after I had my dessert. That was, that was a bummer, but that was the vacation price. So we're going to look at some verses today that talk about price, and then we're going to um, look at what they mean. So look at 1 Corinthians 6. We're just going to look at two verses uh, to start with today. Starting in verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of being here today. We thank you that Uh, You are with us in the good times and the bad times. That you lift up our head, Lord, when we're discouraged. That you are the encourager. That you send your spirit to be the comforter for us. We thank you that you are so good to us. Time and time and time again, Lord, uh, you never leave us. You never forsake us. We thank you that you are a faithful God. We thank you that you are a good God. We ask that you would bless our time today, Lord. That you would be with us. Open up our eyes to your word and the truth that it contains. I pray that you'd speak to our hearts, God, that we might hear it and be changed for your glory. Amen. So these verses that we read here today, they mention the word price, and it's talking about the price of the cross. What was the cost for us to be forgiven? of our sins, for us to be saved from the wrath of God. There there was a price, and it had to be paid. So I want to look at a couple things today. First, I want to look at the price of the cross for the Father. The price of the cross for the Father. In other words, what is the cost that the Father paid? The price was his only Son. The Father sent the Son. It says in Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. And then in Romans 5, listen to this. It says this. God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now notice this. He says, while we were yet sinners. So he didn't wait for us to get cleaned up. He didn't wait for us to become righteous on our own. That's not possible. No. He didn't wait for us to shape up. No, the Father, he saw a problem And he decided to act on it. So he didn't just send the Son. He actually covenanted with the Son. Some might call it the covenant of redemption. From the beginning of time, this was the plan for God to redeem his people. It wasn't plan B or plan C. This was plan A. Look at Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible under the chair in front of you. And um, I might mention a couple page numbers to help you find it if you need. Acts chapter 2, page 531 in those blue Bibles. Let's start in verse 22. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This was the definite plan. This was part of God's plan from the beginning. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, he saw there was a problem, and he already fixed the problem before time began. It was already done. We just had to roll through history, through a few thousands of years, to get to the point where we get to see Jesus come onto the scene. Now we're blessed because we get to look in hindsight at all of this. Like we're privileged, all right. The saints at the time going through it, they were looking forward to the Messiah coming. We get to look back, all right. It's like we got we got the 2020 hindsight, right? We can see very clearly. For them. It was kind of like through that glass dimly. They could see different things, but they weren't quite sure. Even it says the angels were trying to look into it and figure it out. But we're blessed. We got it. This was God's plan from the beginning. And I want you to, I want you to see this. He didn't just send the son and say, man, I hope it works out. All right, have a nice trip. You know, see you in 30 plus years. No, he actually makes a number of promises that the father gives to the son as he is sent. Now we can't really look at all the verses, but I want to at least mention these different promises. He promises that God would form a purified church for his son. Did he do that? Yes. He promises that the son would receive the spirit without measure. Did he do that? Yes. He promises that he would be ever present to support Jesus. Did he do that? He promises he would deliver Jesus. He would take him from the grave and raise him up and exalt him to his right hand. Did he do that? He promises that Jesus would have the Holy Spirit descend to whomever he willed. Did he do that? And he promises that all the Father gave to him, gave to Jesus, would come to Jesus, and none, none, not one, would be lost. Did he do that? And he promises that multitudes from every tribe, every nation would partake of his redemption in his messianic kingdom. Did he do that? I mean, isn't that amazing? So the Father is involved in the work of our salvation. He aids the Son in the task. They have covenanted together to redeem us. So the Father made a great personal sacrifice why would he do this to redeem a people for his own and the ultimate price he paid was his very son's life that's quite a price to pay let's talk for a minute about the price of the cross for the son in other words what is the cost that the son paid well there's kind of two aspects to christ's work I want to talk about both of them in just a second. But first, it's under, it's important for us to understand where Jesus' desire lay in all this. Okay. We need to understand when, when the Father sends the Son, the Son goes willingly. All right. He wasn't like kicking his feet or dragging his feet or whatever. I know none of you, you teenagers are ever like that with your parents. All right. He wasn't dragging his feet. He willingly went. He wanted to go. Look at John chapter 6. He says in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Wouldn't that be good for each one of us to be able to say that about the Father? It's not about my will. It's about the Father's will. He says again, look at John chapter 14, we see a similar thing. In the very last verse, verse 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So Jesus didn't go dragging his feet. He delighted to do what the Father wanted him to do. He delighted to do his will. The psalm talks about that. He wasn't like some of us who mumble and complain when the Lord asks us to do something. He wasn't like us who sometimes pause or wait. No, the, the Lord spoke to the Son, and the Son did it. So there's two kind of aspects that uh, theologians talk about. One is what we would call maybe active obedience. Jesus took on human flesh. Think of John 1. The Word became what? The Word became flesh. I can't hear you guys, by the way, a little bit. Alright? What did the word become? Hey, that's better. And dwelt among us. So Jesus, he lived in perfect obedience to the Father for like 30 plus years. Has anyone else ever done that? No. We can't even make make it through like a day. Alright? Let alone a week or a month. God's standard is perfect obedience. Every single day, Jesus woke up. From the time he got up to the time he went to bed, perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. Day after day. On the great days, you know, feeding the 5,000, and on those days, it says in John chapter 6, where some of the disciples, not any of the 12, but some of the disciples, they walked away. That had to be a pretty low day. So the good days, the bad days... The mountains, the valleys, perfect obedience every single day for 30-plus years. Plus, he had to put up with people like us, right? Like the disciples. It'd be one thing if we just, you know, put on an island and see how you do and can you make it or whatever by yourself, but interacting with other people? It's like, man, the world would be such a better place, right, if I didn't have to interact with everybody, right? Right? Be many less problems. So Jesus also was interacting with people. He was interacting with the disciples, inter- interacting with the Pharisees, interacting with all sorts, from, from all the way over here to all the way over here on the spectrum, all sorts of people. And yet, perfect obedience. He never got bent out of shape, he never sinned once in all of that. Perfect obedience. Then there is what we might call the passive of obedience what was done to him? by the people then. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. It's on page 585. Here's what it says in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God.
1: So he left
0: the glory of heaven to come down here to earth. And he lived a life always conquering temptation, never sinned. And what was the result? The people killed him. They murdered him. They crucified him. This excruciating death on the cross. Well, why would would Jesus do that? Why would he do that? Well, he did it out of his love for the Father and out of his love for us. He loved us. It says, "Greater Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So the ultimate price the son paid was his own life. John 10 says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So in that covenant with the Father, he was given the authority to do that, to lay down his very life, now he could have he could have stopped it, right? Even with the temptation with the devil. The devil starts quoting some scripture at him in the wilderness. And oh throw yourself off the pinnacle here of the temple. We'll make sure that the angels don't dash your foot. What is Satan what is Satan trying to do there? I mean he's tempting him. He's tempting him. He's tempting him, right? Uh, Jesus was sent by God going back to the garden to undo the very thing that Satan tempted the first couple with. Think about that. Think about the first Adam. Failed miserably. The second Adam, Romans talks about Jesus being the second Adam. Jesus came and did what Adam failed to do. He did it, Adam couldn't do it. So Christ paid the ultimate price with his very life. What was the result? He redeemed us. Listen, we were in spiritual bondage. We were like locked up in a spiritual dungeon. Look at Titus chapter 2. It's on page 579. It says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works so he redeemed us what's redemption? it's Christ's saving work viewed really as like an act of him buying us back. We're sinners, right? We are slaves to sin. What does Christ do? He redeems us. Other parts of Scripture call it the ransom. So he redeems us. There's a price for the ransom. And the price is his life. So he buys us out of that bondage to sin through the payment of his very life. Galatians 3 says something similar. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. One author put it this way. The imagery in these verses of 1 Corinthians stresses primarily the new ownership. Right? You're not your own. So there's new ownership. And secondly, a costly act on the part of the new owner which makes the believer legitimately and contractually the one to whom the believer now belongs. So we're not our own. Like God owns us. He paid the price and now he has rightful ownership. Listen, this like strikes at the heart of American individualism, American Autonomy. Just do your own thing. It's all about you. You're in charge. You're your own man. You're your own woman. This strikes at the heart of it. Because you're not your own. Alright? So if you're a believer in Jesus, like, the Father owns you. He owns you. But that shouldn't, that shouldn't scare us. That should comfort us. Like, you're gonna be owned by someone or something. You wanna be owned by the world? That is scary. Like, if you're owned by the Father, He is a good and gracious and kind and loving, He is going to treat you very graciously. So if you're going to be owned, be owned by the One who created it all, who is in charge of it all, who has the power to defeat sin, which He did. So you're not your own. Look back, go back to 1 Corinthians, because I want you to see this in chapter 6. He says it towards the end of verse 19, um, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So the Spirit in you, I, want you to, I wanted you to see this yourself, the Spirit in you is evidence that God owns you. You belong to the one whose Spirit dwells within you. In fact, Ephesians talks about the Spirit being like uh, an earnest deposit, like a down payment that God is going to come back to fully take back his bride to be with him forever. Many times in scriptures you'll hear different references to Christ's sacrifice, and it'll reference the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. When it talks about the blood, it's really talking about everything that Christ did to redeem us. It's talking about his active obedience. It's talking about his passive obedience. The focus being primarily on the cross. When you look through the scriptures, think of the New Testament, where's the focus? The focus is on the cross. That's where the payment was made. Your sins put on to Jesus. That gets you to a place of being morally neutral. If 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 we, if we, if we, right now, if you're not a believer, if your sins... Are wiped away, then where are you back to? You're back to the Garden of Eden, basically. You're back to Adam and Eve. But let me ask you this. In the Garden of Eden, right then, when they were created, they were given these commands to do. Did they have salvation at that point? No. They didn't. They were morally neutral. And they were given these commands to follow. So when Christ comes and takes away sin, that's not enough. We actually have to have uh, a morally positiveness, if you will. We have to have righteousness. And just having no sin does not make you righteous. It really doesn't. You have to have the righteousness of Christ. That's why in Corinthians it talks about Christ is our righteousness. We have to have a holiness that can only come from God himself. So he takes his righteousness and imputes it to us through justification. I know those are some big words there. The point is, God forgives our sin and gives us a righteousness that's not our own. It comes from him. We can try all we want to conjure up a righteousness. It's going to fall flat every single time. So we've looked at the the price of the cross for the father, the price of the cross for the son. What about the price of the cross for us, what does it cost us? In one sense, it costs us nothing, right? I mean, why? Because Jesus, I mean, He paid it all. They took care of it through their covenant. But in another sense, it costs us everything. We have to be willing to give it all up to follow Jesus. Look at Galatians chapter 2. It says this in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Let's read that again. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ Who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me so there's there's this idea you've been crucified with Christ when Christ was up on the cross you were put into Christ if you have Christ guess what you've been crucified with him and you no longer live the old person is gone the new has come That's why it goes on to say the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Mr. Rogers, did any of you all grow up watching Mr. Rogers? All right. Some of the younger kids are like, who's that? No, it's not Captain America, okay. Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, towards the end of his life, He asked his wife, Joanne, am I a sheep? Now, he was a pastor. Had that nice little show on PBS with the little trolley, right? They made a movie about him recently. But that was his question to his wife, am I a sheep? Here, this guy who had done all these amazing things, all these great works, actually broke down some barriers during his time that were quite impressive, was asking his own wife, if she thought he was saved. Why is that? Because it really gets back to where our heart is at with the Lord. Where's our heart at? I mean, we can do tons and tons and tons of awesome things, even in the name of God, but really it starts with our heart. God wants to know where our heart is at with him. And he wants a heart That's humble. What does he do to the proud? It says he opposes the proud. A couple times in Scripture, God opposes the proud, but he gives what to the humble? He gives grace to the humble. Grace. The cross is the center of the story in the New Testament. And and listen to this. Christianity is the only religion that has as its central story the dying of its God. Think about that. And the cross in Roman times, it represented humiliation, shame, embarrassment. It even represented pain, suffering. Uh, The Romans, you know, they mastered the art of torture. You know, if they thought to themselves, what process can we use to drag out someone's death, cause as much pain in the process, and let as many people as possible see it and scare them? it'd be crucifixion. There's not much of a worse way to die. But Jesus died this way to accomplish what we couldn't accomplish. To accomplish what the people back then couldn't accomplish. To accomplish what anyone who lives after us couldn't accomplish. A payment for sin that was sufficient for God. And he paid it. Amen? So we, we trust in Jesus. We trust that what he did was enough because it was. His sacrifice was enough. And we trust that he did what we know we can't do. That's why there has to be a humility to it. We have to admit, all of, we don't like to admit we can't do things. Alright? We don't like to do that. But we have to admit we can't do it. That we need someone else to help us out. We need someone else to take our place. We need someone else to step in and be the substitute for us. And that's what Jesus did. Listen, there's a lie that we believe sometimes. And it's the same lie that Adam and Eve believed. It's what you might call an an Edenic poison. It goes back all the way to Eden. The Edenic poison is this. God is holding back. He's holding back something from you. There's more, but he won't let you have it. I mean, that was the lie that the serpent told to Adam and Eve. God's holding back from you. There's more. There's more. And Adam and Eve, they were meant to rule over creation. That was their dominion mandate, rule over creation. And guess what? They couldn't even rule their own appetites. It ended up being their undoing. I mean, think about it. They gave up everything for a piece of fruit. Right? I mean, think about that. Fruit. I mean, come on. When was the last time anyone was tempted by a piece of fruit? I mean, it probably was Adam and Eve, right? We learned something from them. I mean, my food temptation usually has like tons of fat and calories, okay? But they got poisoned from the serpent. They got poisoned. They didn't even get bit, right? But they did get bit. They got poisoned from the serpent, and they drank that poison in, and it caused their undoing. And that can be something for us as well that we think God is holding back from us. Listen, God is the good gift giver. James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change what's that saying he's always going to be a good give good gift giver that's what it's saying he's always going to be given perfect gifts all right he doesn't hand you this beautifully wrapped present and you open it up and you're like oh that's not what i expected no he gives you exactly what he promises you he's faithful and he gives good gifts but here's the thing for us We need to make sure that we don't focus on the gift. We're called to focus on the gift giver. All right, God's not a genie. I know Latin's coming out, or maybe it's already out. God doesn't live in a lamp, but he gives gifts. But he gives them as he sees fit. As he sees fit, he gives gifts. The greatest gift he gave us is available to each one of us, the gift of his son. Salvation through him. Listen, I understand. God lets pain come into our lives. We'll never fully, this side of heaven, understand why certain things happen. Physical pain, emotional pain, but he lets it come into our lives, sometimes in very real and powerful and life-changing ways. And in the midst of that pain, the Father is reaching out to us. And then when the Father reaches out to us, it's through the hand of His Son. And do you know what you see when this happens? You see the nail-scarred hands. You see Jesus' hands with the scars, and, and you see the one who laid it down for you. You see someone who went through horrible pain and suffering and can sympathize and empathize with you in your pain and suffering. And we see he can minister to us in our weakness, in our sorrow, in our hurt. I mean, he climbs into the hurt with us. He climbs into the loneliness with us, the pain, and he's with us. It's like he gets into the pit with us. All right, He's not up at the top of the pit shouting to us to get out. I mean, he climbs down into the pit and is with us. And then he rescues us from that pit. Jonathan Edwards, theologian, he wrote to his daughter, perpetual sunshine is not usual in this world, even to God's true saints. And he continued to write and, say, and said, what do we do when the, when, the, <clears throat> when the sun isn't shining? He said three things. One, remember God's past graces. Remember what he's already done for you. Two, enjoy God's present blessings. Even in the midst of trial, suffering, affliction, God's still blessing you. In some way, He's still blessing you. So think on that. And then, three, await God's future promises. One of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, says, All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. So every single promise, every single promise, every single promise, the ones that He's already fulfilled, he's going to keep fulfilling them. The ones that he is fulfilling, he's going to keep fulfilling. The one he's promised to fulfill, he's going to fulfill. And, and for, what, for us, some of the encouragement should be the fact that he's already fulfilled some promises for us and that he is right now fulfilling promises for us should give us encouragement to know he will continue to fulfill the future promises. Listen, for the believer, glory awaits. And it'll be here... Just like that. It'll be here before we know it. The other day I was, I was out jogging. I was listening to an Audible book. And at the end of each chapter, there'd be a quote, like a, a hymn or a, a little poem, part of a poem. <clears throat> and then it would put the author of the hymn, it, it, it'd say who the author was. And then it'd give like the year they were born and the year they died. So I'm like out running, you know, doing a little jogging. And, it, and it, the fir- first chapter ends where it does this, and and it states when he died and when he was born. And I'm like, I kind of do the math quick in my head, because I'm like that. I don't know. And I was like, huh. <clears throat> so I keep running. I keep running. I get to the end of the next chapter, and it's another person, another quote from a hymn or poem, states the author, and it says, you know, when they were born and when they died. And I was like, and I did the math again in my head, like, I wanted to just, how old were these people? And each one of them, both times, were 42. And I'm 42. So it kind of made me pause, like, these guys didn't make it to 43. All right? 13 days, I'll make it to 43. God willing. But 42 years old when they died. James talks about life being a mist, a mist, right? Life is a mist. We don't know when our time might be up. So we have to make the most of what God gives us. And listen, each one of us has to decide what we're going to do. It's a finite amount of time. God blesses some people. I mean, some people live like 100 or something. Some people die the day they're born. And sadly, many millions die before they're born. But each one of us has a finite amount of time. A finite amount. Compared to eternity, it is very small. Very small. But God blesses us with that time. He gives it to us. We are the stewards of our life, so to speak. And we have to decide how we will handle the life that we're given. My encouragement for each one of us is to spend it for God's glory. That's how that passage ends in 1 Corinthians 6. The whole point is, you're not your own, you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God. Give Him the glory in everything you do. Listen, that's only possible if you have the Spirit of God living in you. He makes mention of it in that verse right before, you've got the Spirit living in you. His whole point in that passage is like, if the Spirit's living in you, how can you possibly think of doing anything that would grieve the Spirit? How can you possibly think of doing something that would dishonor God? But for unbelievers here, if you're not sure if you're a believer, let me speak to you for a second. Like, this life in Christ is available to you. And it's very simple. You have to trust in the work of of Christ. It's a trust in what He did. And it's not just knowing about, it's knowing Him. It's truly knowing Him and trusting Him. Just knowing the facts, that's not enough. You can intellectually assent to all this stuff in the Bible, to everything I've said today. Just knowing it intellectually, that won't save you. People know tons of facts. Tons and tons of facts. Uh, I went to uh, my undergraduate <clears throat> I was a religious studies major and in, in undergraduate and those guys um, people who professed to not be believers I mean they knew the word they knew the word right but they didn't know the word um, and they were very intellectually superior than I will ever hope to be but intellect and our capabilities intellectually, and how smart we are, and how a higher IQ doesn't save us. It doesn't even get us closer to God. In fact, sadly, it can be a stumbling block for those who have a high intellect, sadly. So what is it? God is concerned about your heart. So you have the head knowledge, but can it transfer to your heart where you place an act of trust in what Jesus did for you? Do you believe it? Do you really believe it? The Bible calls that having faith in Jesus and what he's done for you. Do you believe that his payment was enough? Do you believe he took your place on the cross? Because he did. I mean, facts are facts. And we've been talking some facts. But these facts have to go from here to here. You have to truly believe. And I encourage each one of you to do that today. For the believers, we need to realize how great the sacrifice was that Christ made for us. We could and should sit around and meditate and contemplate it because it's powerful. It should fill our hearts with joy to know how much Christ loved us, to know how much the Father loved us, that they would do plan A, that they would redeem us, that they would rescue us from the beginning of time to call us their own. For God the Father to adopt us into his family. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, he could have saved us without calling us his children. No. I mean, we're children of God. Children of God. Let me, let, let's just look at one last verse. 1 John chapter 3. The very first verse. <clears throat> see what kind of love the Father has given to us. All right, you see that? So it's a kind of love. It's a particular kind of love. Let's see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. So John's making a point here. Hey, he loves us, but I want you guys to recognize what kind of love it is. It's a fatherly love. It's a love that... that takes the enemies of the cross and adopts them into his family. And that's why the Bible says we're we're co-heirs with Christ. I mean some of these promises in scripture like should blow your mind. Like to reign with Christ, that's what it says. That's insane. Like God gives us gift after gift after gift after gift after gift. Like that's why, friends, we gather and we sing his praises. Because he alone is worthy of it. And we should rejoice at what he has done for us. We should be glad. Our hearts should be filled with joy. And we should long to sing his praises because he and he alone is worthy of it all. Amen? So Let our hearts be filled with joy. Let us set our hearts on Christ. Let us be grateful for the work that he has done. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good to us. You are so good to us. We thank you that you sent the Son. Jesus, we thank you for coming to rescue us. You redeemed us. You shed your blood for us. You died the perfect death. Father, we thank you for the adoption we have as your children. We thank you that you did show us what kind of a love it was. It was a fatherly love that sacrifices the ultimate, his own son, for us. Lord, be glorified in our lives. Be lifted up in our lives, Lord. Let us hear from you, Lord, Through Your Word, let us hear by Your Spirit so that we can set our heart even more on You for Your glory. Amen.